Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Flywheel, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and all that's in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, well, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel and talk about people that understand the flywheel. We have on Anthony and Mason of Trident Digital, which are really carving a niche in between TradFi and DeFi and offering both a lending product, lending prime brokerage product. I'll let them get into it on the show. And also the stablecoin advocacy platform uh, that is, you know, helping the next hundred stablecoins and TradFi enter DeFi. That's how I would describe it. You know, they work closely with PayPal, PYOSD, Uncurve. And these guys have a ton of insight when it comes to stablecoins, DeFi, TradFi, and where DeFi is going in the near future. Uh, Kit, what are your thoughts on this one? Man, I just love when we interview like truly, truly TradFi super experienced people because they just come with like this wealth of knowledge that mm-hmm. we almost are a completely black box, you know, towards yeah. or we just... We don't know what we don't know, and it's so good to have them on. So I think yeah. the listeners are going to learn so much in, in this one. Yeah, you have people like you and me, which are who are DeFi native. We came in the world on chain. I don't have any TradFi experience. I, I know you worked in private equity, but to have somebody that works in TradFi, and especially someone like Anthony, who keeps on going more and more on the risk curve, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just the DJN saying like, oh, like you're gonna, yeah. you're gonna get, we're gonna get all into the story. So you're gonna, I'm gonna save it for him, uh, and then fi- understand how it works and apply that to DeFi. Uh, it's quite beautiful to see. Agreed. Yeah, and without further ado, we're gonna get right in. But before we do, make sure you go ahead, hit that bell button right now on YouTube, subscribe, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. Every little comment helps, and give us a like. Every little like helps. Make sure you follow our socials at FlywheelDefi on Twitter, TikTok, and Telegram. And you can go to our website, flywheeldefi.com. You won't regret it. In fact, you'll thank yourself later because you have exclusive updates that you might not get anywhere else before anyone else. And make sure you follow me at DefiDave22 on Twitter. Follow me at 0xCapital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Flywheel. I'm your host, DeFi Dave, here with Capital K as always. And this time around, we have on the team at Trident Digital. We have on Anthony DiMartino, the founder and CEO of Trident Digital, as well as Mason, who heads DeFi and operations. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here. Uh, Anthony, you're muted. Excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, you know, thank you uh, for having us. And you know, with all the excitement around, I mean, there's so many different things to be excited about, whether it's PayPal entering with their stablecoin, the Bitcoin ETF, so many different things that we're going to get into on this episode, especially with your you know, extensive TradFi experience, which is actually leads to my first question. Um, can you both uh, give a little bit of background of you know yourselves, you know what you were doing before, and how you got into crypto and started Trident? Sure, Mason, you want to kick off? 
Yeah. Um, so I worked in options for a little while uh, before moving around various number of startups and actually working at a startup incubator as well uh, here in Chicago. Um, made the jump into DeFi full time, let's see, five, six years ago now. It feels like the time has been flying. Um, but really just trying to bridge the gap kind of between the traditional finance space and the crypto space has been my, my main focus. So. And then uh, on my end, uh, 20 years on Wall Street, I was at uh, UBS, Barclays, and HSBC. Um, I traded short-term interest rates. I did repos and T-bills. I traded Fannie and Freddie during the housing crisis from 07 to 2012 at UBS. That sounds uh, riveting. It was exciting. <laughs> you know, it was a great experience because like one day I thought I was going to make millions of dollars in bonuses and the next day I thought I was going to get fired and the economy was going to collapse. So it was really like kind of bipolar from one day to the next, but like perfect <laughs> preparation for crypto, honestly. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, and actually you'll start to see the theme in my career. I just go from one volatile thing to the next. So, um, you know, we've done well on that pace and he, they, they added European peripheral trading to me. So that's, uh, Cyprus, Greece, Iceland, when it was all blowing up. So I was looking after a bit of that. And then I went to, uh, Barclays where I became the global head of emerging markets for rates and FX trading. So, uh, Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, China. So uh, really awesome experience to learn about so many different countries and cultures. And I think it's probably where I first started to understand the need for crypto without really understanding what crypto was. I remember at Barclays, it was probably totally the tail end. So like 2017, a bunch of my Asian FX traders came to me and they're like, you got to buy this Bitcoin thing. You got you to get into crypto. This is crazy. It's, you know, um, and I remember making a joke of it and I'm like, you know, if it's really that good, you should borrow a bunch of money and buy a ton of it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. I'm like, no, no, I was kidding. <laughs> so, you know, obviously if they bought it and sold, they did well. If not, yeah, they probably hate me. Um, and then I, uh, in 2018, I moved to HPC to run specifically Latin America. So I ran all the banks for HPC from the trading perspective in Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, and Mexico. And, you know, my fun story from there was I was on the ground in Argentina when the capital controls got put in that are still in today. That led to Malay becoming president to, you know, when I joined HSBC, dollar peso was 12 to the dollar. It's 800 today. And when you talk about store, store of value and medium of exchange, 800, and there's capital controls. So, I haven't checked recently, but it used to be only $100 a month you can convert from pesos to dollars. Um, where before, you, if you had an offshore bank account, what you would do I was is- your last podcast. And on that podcast, yeah. it was 712 to one. Right. And now it's 800 <laughs> yeah. to one. <laughs> yeah. Talk yeah, about- and the, inflation, and the inflation rate's about 120 to 140%. Right. So we, we, well, we whine about four, right? So, uh, but I'll give you the last bit. And if you'd heard this is, the real, the real, um, uh, real killer of the whole thing is if you're like you know your guy's age, you're starting to make some money, you want to store some wealth. The Argentinian stock market's joke. The bond markets, you know, when rates are twelve hundred percent, like you, like the inflation rate just kills you. So it's only property where you can really store your value, and that's the case in many emerging market countries, right? You can really only store wealth in property, but the real killer is you can't really buy property in Argentina or Brazil or Peru or Mexico unless it's in dollars. Let that sink in for a second. You can't buy a car in Brazil unless it's in dollars. 
You definitely can't buy a car in Argentina unless it's in dollars. Right. So you think about it like you can only convert a hundred bucks a month or two hundred bucks a month, and the only store of value is housing. Right. Like so, you know, we whine about inflation, but that that's like, you know, that's like creating caste systems economically that you can't get out of. Yeah. I didn't even realize that the dollar was the medium of exchange for major purchases for housing and cars. That makes sense, especially for big purchases. And uh, if I'm selling it, I, I want I would want something like dollars. But I didn't realize that was a thing. Well, I mean, think of if you're Volkswagen or Mercedes Benz, like the currency can move ten percent in a week. Right. Right. So you sold a car for fifty thousand, and you get forty five thousand back. Right. And your margins aren't thirty percent. So why would you even want to take that FX volatility? Like you want a Volkswagen, buy it in dollars. Got it. Right. So how did you go from being on the ground in Argentina when capital controls were in place to getting into crypto? Now, this seems, it sounds like that makes sense. Yeah. So I keep going out what's called the volatility curve, right? So treasuries sure. are kind of the least volatile mm -hmm. and then you move into credit and then you move into emerging markets. Um, yeah, I got fired from HSBC. Uh, well, made redundant is a nice way to say it. Uh, management shuffle didn't need me anymore. Um, so in September of 2020, uh, I got let go from HSBC. Uh, I was running the that LATAM team. And, um, you know, it was weird. It was COVID. So I didn't have anywhere to go. And I was been used to getting up at five in the morning every day. So I kind of got up at five in the morning, went downstairs to my laptop. And I was like, well, I don't have to log into HSBC. So... Let me check my junk email that I never check. And I got an email from 99 Bitcoins, right? You know, that weird dude who does like yeah. you know, five minute clips. And uh, I think I watched like 30 of them that day in a row. And I was just like so enthralled by it. And I, and I like, you know, I'm never going to let the facts get in the way of a good story. But like, I would say I was downstairs for 10 hours, just like nonstop. And this went on for weeks. Um, and I'm like, I think I want to do this next. How do I get into it? And I realized that a colleague that used to work for me at Barclays became the head of sales trading at Prime at Coinbase, Brett Tejpal. Uh, a friend of mine at Barclays who used to run commodities was the head of Fidelity a uh, Europe for crypto, digital assets. I had another friend from UBS who was running Crypto Brokers AG's trading desk. So I had all these TradFi guys that already made the jump. And long story short, we had a great chat, really like substantial chats about market structure and how things work. I pitched a DeFi and derivative trading team to Coinbase. So I went from zero in September to pitching in January, a DeFi and derivative trading team to Coinbase. And I got hired, you know, January 29th um, and started the team. So 10 people, it was called Coinbase for Strategies. We had 10 people, um, you know, I can't really disclose how much we managed, but it was north of 500 million. Uh, and it was basically cash futures basis uh, and DeFi yield farming. It was all directionless yield uh, yield farming. So we weren't taking bets on this coin going up or down. It was more of yield generation. And we did it in such a way, because DeFi and derivatives were not any things that Coinbase clients, that we offered to Coinbase clients, we weren't trading against our clients. The, the ethos was we don't trade against our clients. So we can only do things like we wouldn't even trade tokens that were listed on the exchange. So, you know, when we did something, certain structures, they we couldn't be in an area where we trade against clients. It's good to hear that uh, exchange does that and has morals and values unlike certain other ones. 
Yeah, no, and so it was all yield generation, right? So, I mean, we were, we were so walled off from that firm, like we were in a different booth. We had to pay Amber data for Coinbase data. Like that's how like crazy they were. Oh, well, the separation is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true separation there. So, yeah, wait, wait. yeah, no, and and I don't know. Sorry, go. Go ahead, finish. finish no, my, my team is still my team is still there. The, we left uh, a couple of us left in June of last year. We went to Matrixport and then we started trying it this June. And uh, I did a couple okay. questions I wanted to ask was like, so during that September to January period, when you were doing all the research and deep in the hole before you pitched Coinbase, like what DeFi protocols do you remember playing with and experimenting with? And was there like a big like, wait, that was, wait, that settled? Wait, like, you know, could, could you walk us through that moment if you had that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. A, so I did a lot on, you know, just getting a MetaMask wallet. I made every mistake you could possibly make. Um, it was a lot of, you know, uh, Curve, Aave, Uniswap. I, I was, you know, I'm a finance guy. So I can ARB Uniswap. And I did, that didn't work at all. Not even close. <laughs> and, you know, I like, and then I was just like, you know, because the DeFi protocols, we do things like yield and they're not really yield. They're just fees aggregated over time that you back into a yield. So it was a lot of just trying to normalize the terminology between the two things. But I do remember um, very vividly when, so I did everything in MetaMask and then you, you got to understand too, is, so you just said till, till January, we really started to kick off in January when I joined Coinbase and some of the best DeFi minds were at Coinbase and they've all gone to start protocols and change and it's, it's been, but it was such a great environment because everyone taught everybody. So I would come in and be like, this is what the inflation number means and this is what, you know, this impact of this war means to the macro environment. And they would explain to me how protocols work, how to be safe in DeFi, you know, how custody work. So I learned a ton almost every day. And, and I got into a lot of stuff that didn't really work out, but I would do remember when Coinbase launched their wallet, you know, you know, Coinbase had their kind of retail wallet. Mm -hmm. they, so I started, uh, it was right during Avalanche rush. So I started experimenting with the Coinbase wallet and Coinbase had a, I don't know if it was a bug or like the UI wasn't great, but like MetaMask didn't let you send AVAX on the wrong chain, but Coinbase did. And I had sent a chunky amount of money for me to Yield Yak to do uh, like a USDC yield farming or like, and I needed to move and I moved a bunch of money and I sent it on the wrong chain. And I was just like, oh my God, it's gone. Right. And I was in like full sweat panic. And I had to call somebody from Coinbase who was just like, I mean, you know, I don't know what the language protocol here is, but yeah, I'm sure you can edit it, but he's like, you dang fucked up. And uh, <laughs> it took a while, but luckily he saved me. But uh, yeah. And then I started learning more about hygiene and, you know, how to protect myself, how to make sure I'm using a clean computer, attaching my ledgers to my kind of Web3 wallets. And, and, and I learned a process. So, okay. but it was a fun experience. I, 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 I still do it today. So, so I, I want to double click into that process you just mentioned, because on your last pod, you said um, getting banking relationships for Trident was extremely, extremely challenging. And banking was almost like a foregone conclusion to you when you were working at Coinbase because everything was just kind of set up. Now, yeah. I want to juxtapose that with like this, all this tech hygiene, all this OPSEC that you kind of had to learn. That also, again, was obfuscated when you worked in TradFi a little bit, right? Everything was handled by IT and it was kind of like just all backend stuff. But now the onus is on you. So as like a, you know, a super heavy TradFi experienced person, like do you think that's 
at all possible for other people to adopt in the future? Or do you think that's also going to be abstracted away as well? Um, I think it'll be abstracted away. I, I think, you know, and I don't, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I was a managing director at an investment bank. So like I never booked a meeting. I never took notes, right? Like people took me where I needed to be when I needed to be there. And then I pushed button, buttons and my goal was to make money, right? Like I have no idea how anything went from front to back. I had no idea who right. processed it. If I made a mistake, somebody else figured it out. Like, so I was about as hand, I was as boomer as you could possibly get, right? Like I got a problem, I'm picking up the phone, right? So <laughs> please fix. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I mean that, and, and you know what? I always felt a bit self-conscious about that because it's like one of those things where, you know, if the power gets knocked out, I'll be dead in two days, right? Like I don't have any survival skills, you know, financially. So I, it was a really good experience to like slow your life down when I was, you know, it was COVID and I was out of work to really like build these things, you know, and just stupid things like using Calendly to book your own meetings instead of having an admin, right? Just, being able to to do a lot of things for yourself is pretty empowering. And once you like get past the fear of DeFi, and, I, and I, a lot of people my age or even younger, I'm like, guys, just take a thousand dollars and do this stuff. And it used to be easier because gas prices weren't extreme two years ago, right? Like you could do a trade and not lose forty percent of your hundred bucks moving money from one place to the other, right? Like, so you just got to do it. And I think once you get a couple reps in, it's the UI experience does suck, but it's not insurmountable yeah, yeah you get used to it it definitely okay, has to get so, better if you want mainstream adoption like don't get me wrong you yeah there's yeah. still a lot of people who'd rather just pick up the phone and with 70 percent of the wealth in the boomer generation i think we're gonna have to see a lot of them die off for changes um getting back to uh trident all right so now you left coinbase and you went to matrix port then trident let's just head over to trident uh how did you start Trident? What is it? And what are what need are you trying to fill in the ecosystem? No, that's a great question. I think um, we noticed when we were at Coinbase and then we we were at Matrixport that uh, I think it's a great a great question. And so we noticed between the two firms that we had worked at that there was a lot of big problems now that the market had um, gone into free fall that were never fixed, right? You know, we we didn't, we had so many issues with lending post Genesis and BlockFi and that had never really come back and still hasn't really come back. Um, we had real problems with the banking system and getting access to being able to transactionally bank and access to get yield, right? We haven't had yield. I mean, you'd have to be almost 40 years old to remember when you could get yield in a checking account because right? that last time that happened was 07 or maybe early 08. So the idea of leaving your money someplace, even getting money back was, is a new phenomenon for everyone. Everyone's like, oh my God, I can get healed for doing nothing. And it's like, well, that's been the case for the last like 75 years, but you know, these last 15, no. Um, and then, you know, things around staking and just really like how tax inefficient staking is in the U.S. and, and how, you know, people who own certain assets can't do certain things because of regulation and tax. So we had basically tried to form uh, an organization that could help solve these bigger problems. And you know, our main, our main focus is building a lending platform. Uh, we call it Lending Conduit. So essentially what we're trying to do is build, uh, and not to get into too much detail, but build a prime broker where you don't have to trust the prime broker. It's really about you, you want to lend to someone else uh, 
but right now there's no there's no platform that you can do that with. You can either lend unsecured, which nobody wants to do anymore, or you can lend over collateralized, which has become very capital inefficient. And there's not too many borrowers want to do that. So what we want to do is be that human version of a smart contract where you say, I'm going to lend to you on these terms, but we need an independent third party to referee these contracts. That's kind of the high level description. We have a proof of concept being done um, in February um, and we have, uh, you know, two very large VCs helping us out uh, to do the proof of concept trade uh, that we'll announce when it becomes official and uh, working with Membrane Labs and the underlying tech. So we're really excited about getting that up and going. And then probably the point you want to hear more about is we've, um, we're starting to help stablecoin issues with adoption specifically in DeFi. Um, so, you know, as you can see from our forum posts that we uh, have helped uh, Paxos uh, manage stable coins um, in MakerDAO and Curve. Currently, we have a proposal on Aave. Um, and we've been providing them advice and execution to get kind of get deeper into to DeFi and to get execution, uh, adoption of their stable coins. So for our viewers at home, that might not be familiar with what a prime brokerage is because they just live on chain. Can you describe what it is and how it compares to DeFi protocols like Aave, Compound, Traxlon? Yeah, so in our space, DeFi protocols, I mean, uh, prime brokers, there's a traditional version of a prime broker and then there's what crypto has become. So most people think of a prime broker as, you know, someone that can help them uh, manage capital on multiple exchanges. Some of them lend to their to their uh, traders. Some of them let their traders lend to them. Uh, some of them uh, give their clients access to exchanges they can't get access to directly, right? So there was always there was this big kind of prime broker thing letting U.S. clients get on the Asian exchanges like Binance. I think the CFTC threw a grenade in that pool, but um, that was kind of a major. And then. The way they were structured, they would allow certain smaller clients to achieve the benefits of higher fee tiers, meaning they would pay less per trade because they were aggregated with other guys. We're just focused on the traditional sense of a prime broker being someone who who uh, allows you to borrow and lend uh, your tokens and get access to capital. So whether it's cash or tokens, we're trying to be that kind of genesis type, but changing the dynamic so that we can get more people to lend and borrow because at the end of the day, both counterparties were at risk to Genesis. What I want to do is make both counterparties at risk to each other. So they, so that there's one risk and one reward. The problem with, with Genesis was you could lend to them at 6% and you didn't know if they were going to invest in treasuries or mining equipment. And you might've been okay on that mining equipment loan if they paid you 30%, which was probably the right risk metric. But you didn't have any ability to choose that. You just said, here's one number, do whatever you want with it. And I think that's what we're trying to break. We're trying to create different levels of risk and reward for people. Yeah, break the cycle. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get a bit into your stablecoin advisory. Uh, we saw on the Curve Forum, you guys had a proposal for PYUSD, and, Cur and PayPal has entered the Curve Wars in a big way. Can you describe Trident's relationship with PayPal and as an observer, how would you describe their DeFi strategy? Um, so our relationship um, as per the forums is with Paxos. Uh, so Paxos um, is a regulated stablecoin issuer. 
they have multiple stable coins under their control. The stable coins are NYDFS regulated. So remember BUSD? That was a Paxos managed stable coin. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what we really do is advise Paxos on multiple stable coins. So we had, um, prior to this, we had helped um, keep USDP in MakerDAO's PSM. So we were able to lob lobby um, that that uh, ecosystem to maintain PY, uh, USDP in the MakerDAO ecosystem. So in, in their PSM. So we do multiple different things. We come up with ideas and pitch to to uh, Paxos uh, on behalf of their stable coins. They also have uh, a gold product that you know may be interesting, and we're kind of formulating some ideas. Um, but we talk to other stablecoin issuers as well, some non. U.S. because we're really interested in trying to land a non-U.S. stablecoin, specifically one in Brazil, because I think there's a really interesting opportunity bringing um, yield products in non-dollars. Mm, right. So like go, Brazil yeah. or Turkey. Yeah, I think that's really what our um, so it's, it's a wide breadth. We're doing something with them now, but it's not the only thing we look at. What opportunity do you see in Brazil? So, like I said, I used to run uh, trading down in Brazil. So. As we had inflation in the U.S., right, what ends up happening is emerging markets get killed. So the currencies get killed, yields go. So if the U.S. hikes four, Brazil's got to hike 12, right? Same thing with, you know, Turkey and South Africa to try to keep up because if they don't, they, come, they start getting dollarized and everything gets super expensive in their country. Um, so in Brazil right now, so I think one, the Brazil economy is doing very well and the currency is pretty close to the cheaps almost ever. It's like 20% off the cheapest it's ever been. And interest rates are above 11%. So my whole thought process was if you could buy a Brazilian stable coin and lock it up in a yield vault and earn that overnight yield level, which is called Saliki, which is, I think, 11 and three quarters. If I'm not mistaken, they might have had another rate cut recently, but the 11 and three quarters. You can then have this asset, which has the ability to appreciate 20, 30 percent against the dollar and earn a double digit yield. Now, if I think about that. Why is it any different than buying something like a layer one token with staking, right? It could, it could appreciate or depreciate a lot more, right? It could lose 90% of its value or 10x. Um, and 12% on Sleek is almost the highest staking yield you can get compared to other layer one. So this idea was a lot stronger in the bearish coming out of the bull market where you're like um, yields on layer ones are okay, but they could still go down a lot. And what I was saying is, well, you have cash, which is one to one. Then you get these kind of real world assets, which are real world currencies invested in real world T-bills, but just in different currencies. And so you have a risk and reward that's a lot lower and high yields. And I think if we were going to be in this bear market for longer, it would have been super attractive. But places like Turkey have yields in the 60% range. So those still might be attractive. And it, it's still the top 25 economy in the in the world. So I thought like we can get onto more in this RWA space, but I think just tokenizing something that people can get access to is not that great. You know, it's not that hard, it's not that easy to get access to currencies, let alone yields in those currencies. That is not, you know, US, UK or Europe. Got it. Um now, going back to stable coins and PayPal, we've noticed PayPal the Super well, we noticed the the pool that PayPal is there with PayPal Frax that be super aggressively incentivized. 
Um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Why do you think PayPal picked Curve over other options as Dexits? And uh, individually, like, what are each of your guys' opinion on Curve as you know the stablecoin pricing center for DeFi? So, I don't want to speak on behalf of Paxos and PayPal, but I'm just going to make my observations of the market if that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. You know, when when PayPal launched, and I think you can your mind can really race around what PayPal can become. You know, you take the capabilities of web PayPal Web two, four hundred forty million users, one hundred and eighty plus countries, twenty five currencies, and then you just kind of extrapolate that out into Web three, um, and you know what their payments edge is, and you can get pretty exciting. But you got to walk before you can run. Even though they're a dominant Web two payments provider, they're brand new in Web three. So um, at the any beginning stage of a stablecoin, the regulatory environment right now is way tougher than it was for USDC and Tether, right? The the economy, crypto economy was way different. The use case was way different. I mean, you can on-ramp now. You can represent dollars in stablecoin format. You can move stablecoins around. So a lot of the big use cases are gone. And so it's a much harder battle. For, even though they they have a dominant brand, it's a much harder battle. So you know, when we when we have conversations about what they should do or how they think about it, I think they think it's like, listen, first, we need to get access to this thing. And two, we need to build use cases, right? Buying some PYUSD in your PayPal account, what do you do with it? Right? There's not a lot of use cases just yet. And, you know, I'm sure their development teams are working uh, with exchanges and uh, payments providers, a lot of different things. But, you know, I would say PYUSD right now is kind of an MVP of what it will be. Right. Mm. There's so many more things that are going to be built alongside it. But I think getting a liquid pool and curve so that people who don't have a Paxos account and want to buy more than three grand on their app can buy a million or two million bucks is important. I think places, people where they can put their PYUSD and earn a great yield in a very low risk way. You know, I think it was really smart for them to choose uh, curve as a good starting point. Mm. Yeah, the first yeah, use case, the curve pool. Yeah, it, it's, it's actually two. It's the use case and access to people who don't have a Paxos account, right? Because it's not the easiest mm. thing to get your hands on with no slippage, right? So yeah. that's really what was the, um, the, to me, is the most exciting thing or the use case for that. Boom. Yeah, and Mason, you too, what are your thoughts on uh, Curve and PayPal? I can speak to the curve side. I think I see, and we have seen over the last few years, curve is kind of a core underpinning of the ecosystem, right? It's not necessarily just a swap venue. It's also a place that we see uh, their code and contracts get integrated with other apps, right? You know, you have Convex is a great example of this. Convex acquiring Prisma is a great example. Um, so I think curve is increasingly, even still with, you know, the release of Llama and different stuff like that, showing itself as kind of a core core infrastructure piece, even just beyond swaps. I mean, you know, there's even platforms that take Curve LP as collateral, you know, CDP platforms. Um, so I kind of view it as like the kind of the center of the tree, right? It's like, you know, if we have this big ball of try and find money, that's the water, right? We need this tree. I think Curve really does sit kind of as the trunk of that tree. Uh, and I think it really is the best place to start uh, in terms of like kind of going out you know, you have those base curve pools, you start to get further out and have other curve pools where it's, you know, stable X, Y, Z, and you start to have this route 
it gets deeper and deeper and deeper into DeFi as you go. Um, and then I think just the curve wars and kind of all the, the memetics around it, I think are very important. Uh, so it was a big thing to kind of be, you know, in the market and really kind of like, okay, what is DeFi focused on? Like, what do crypto people know? You know, and there are many other good AMMs and all of these things, but I think curve just continues to prove itself as kind of the center of a lot of activity in the space. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I could add to that. I think the community from Michael down is awesome as well. I mean, we've had a lot of uh, community members reach out to us and, and guide us and provide advice and connect us to other people in the community. So, you know, I couldn't be more grateful and appreciative of the, the Curve community. Yeah, they're definitely the, uh, one of the gigabrains communities of GFI, uh, hands down, you know. As Frax people, we have a lot of interactions with them, and it's always it's a delight. It's refreshing to see people that actually care about the mechanics and care about DeFi in the way that they do. So shout out Curve and all the llamas out there. Um, Kit, what, what are you thinking right now? What's on your mind? Um, what, what Anthony said about PYUSD is just an MVP has kind of got mm-hmm. me thinking about like, okay, well, what's next then, right? Like now that after you kind of get all the primitives in place, right, you have the lending protocols that will take PYUSD, you have a swapping facility that you can move like, you know, seven, eight figs through without slippage. What's next? Mm-hmm. Like, is it door to door? Can I take you to the end? Yes, Let me take you to the end game. Uh, I, I'm, I'm try- I've said this to a couple of people and I'm trying to get traction and then be like, uh, be given credit for it down the road when it happens. I think, I think what PayPal wants to be is a layer two for money. And what I mean by that is um, there's so much friction in the banking space, but you know, for most people, 90 plus percent happens in the banking system, right? When I have to send my mortgage payment, it goes through a bank. When I have to get paid, it goes through a bank. Um, I think you know, if PayPal is successful, the amount of P2P business that can happen just in their Web2 version, and then you think about, right, think about how many people get paid in USDC. Why shouldn't they get paid in PYUSD? And, and I, I, I use it as an example because once it's PYUSD, it's PayPal dollar in the PayPal ecosystem. So you can buy stuff with it. You can pay other people with it. So now you start saying, I do 100 transactions a month with the bank, but I'm going to start doing more and more within the PayPal ecosystem, whether it's Web 2 or Web 3. And you start to keep reducing that number. So maybe at some point in the future, you're doing 90% in that payments infrastructure, only 10 down at the banks. So you're just creating this like aggregation at a whole nother level and minimizing the actual need in the banks. Um, so that's where I think the end game is. I think that they're gonna, you know, like you said, being able to be a vendor like chain analysis or chain link and being able to get paid in PYUSD and then be able to off-ramp it you know, be able to off-ramp it into the PayPal ecosystem and then eventually, if you need to, off-ramp it into the banking system. And I think PayPal is just going to keep creating more and more things you can do before hitting that last leg into the banking system. Hopefully that wasn't too high level, but that is, that's what I think the, if they're successful, that's the end game. The last piece is getting these transactions on a blockchain. You know, obviously, if you're going to make all of their infrastructure and move it on a blockchain, Ethereum is not where it's going to end up because of the costs. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean they can't do proof of concept on Ethereum, and then when they start to scale all of their transactions, um, you know, employ another blockchain. This is just me, you know, 
if I'm like trying to figure okay. out like how do I get there, um, uh, that's my yeah, thoughts. No, I often say that you're going to see banks and companies and you know, companies like PayPal and more release their own, not just stable coins, but chains. It just makes sense. And so I have to, I have to agree with you, Anthony, that I would not be surprised if years down the line uh, that PayPal has their own L2. And who knows like what the modular world is going to look like then, where they're going to have their data availability, where they can put their money and, and whatnot. Uh, now, keeping the topic of stablecoins, and of course, this is a Frax podcast. I want to get your guys' opinion on Frax. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts about it? Uh, what do you, where do you think Frax's place is in the DeFi stablecoin ecosystem? And yeah, that, take, go ahead, Anthony and Mason. Mason, you want to kick off and I'll finish? Yeah, sure. I mean, first off, I would say it's been incredible to watch how they've grown and kind of just proliferated the use of Frax uh, across chains uh, just to see the number of products that they ship and kind of, I think, the the core ethos and how they all surround it and support it, you know, whether that's LSTs, whether that's their lending market, whether that's Frax Ferry. I, I really think, and, you know, this is my perception kind of from the outside, not having gotten super far into the Frax ecosystem. I've obviously talked to you guys. We've talked to various people, but I think it's just they're doing a very good job of building this thing that just has multiple branches and isn't just one thing. Like, you know, I think some people, we might look at certain apps and say, okay, why are they building all these different components, right? Frax is one that I think like it's it's pretty obvious to see kind of that core of what they're building around. Uh, so that's the first thing. Further, I mean, it's just great. I'm a huge fan of seeing more decentralized stables, you know, as the, the space, like, as much as detractors might say like crypto has no product market fit or whatever, I think it's actually very clear there is product market fit and it is around stable coins. It is around lending. I mean, let's be real. Like if you look at the lending markets in crypto right now, I think over the next year, they're going to be far and above better than any other traditional lending markets are, right? You know, it's Lombard loans. It's actually uh, getting people shifted over to this mindset of like having a loan that's backed by collateral instead of just like a loan that's backed by a debt obligation, you know, and like it obviously does have a debt obligation within the Lombard loan, but getting people to kind of get into this mindset of like, you know, it's almost more value accretive. Um, and you know, like as great as Maker is, as great as all of these other solutions are, we need as many solutions as possible. We need, you know, smaller attack surfaces uh we need to think about those vectors and yeah i can't applaud frax enough for just the continual building i mean even just the community you guys are great you're all very helpful you know we've encountered so many people that are happy to share information happy to make connections uh and it's just an inspiring thing to see yeah i, I would just add to that the just commitment to what you guys all are and stay in that path, right? And you've seen other stable coins try to pivot and just try to grow at, at, at all costs and uh, just become things that they're not. I think in the end, that's that's hurt them. And I just love the approach that you stay committed to who you are and what, what you're trying to build. And I think the success, especially, especially in the bear market is what it's most impressive because it's not that hard to 
it is hard. It, it is hard to be successful in a bull market, but you don't get the same 10 X's and you don't, and the ability to keep people committed to a project in a bear market is really, really impressive. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mason, I want to hit on a point. You said that we need to see more and more decentralized stables. And that leads to my next question for both of you. Do you see a world where there's hundreds, if not thousands of stable coins, whether it's your local credit union, your bank issuing a stable coin, whether it could be Starbucks issuing a stable coin, whether it's an airline. Do you see a world of hundreds of thousands of stable coins? I, I guess I can jump on that. Uh, I do, personally. I think that, you know, what we're creating in the crypto ecosystem is essentially like facilities for fungibility, right? You know, just the actual way that money can move around and like how things can equate to one another. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing right now with some of these newer entrants to stables, like say the traditional finance groups, is kind of this recognition of like, all right, you can create this this asset that essentially is tied to the risk-free rate or tied to treasury yield, right? And, you know, one point there too I'll, I'll actually make is that none of that's antithetical towards the U.S. dollar. It's actually all very positive to the U.S. dollar, right? Like, you know, if you're buying bonds, like government's not going to hate you. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think we need a bit more infrastructure in the L2 side. We need to kind of get further out. You know, like if we look at Ethereum is like this central clearing house, essentially, and all these different layers is kind of their own clearing layer. Uh, I, I don't think we're very far off from this vision of, you know, friend groups having a stable coin. You know, say you're planning a vacation and you all have a stable that you put in and it is able to earn you interest while you guys are actually planning this trip, right? You know, some of these things aren't necessarily possible right now just because of the costs operationally and, and maybe even just kind of the cognitive costs of like figuring out how to manage right. all that stuff. But I think yeah, as we just, get yeah. further abstractions, you know, account abstractions, oh, like wallet abstractions, user interface, <laughs> I, I definitely see a future in which there are many, many different cool. uh, stable assets. Okay, sweet. But I, Dave, I, I think it was funny how, um, when you mentioned, you know, loyalty points or um, different type of, but, you know, essentially that's, if they move that economic value transfer onto the blockchain, then, you know, why wouldn't all your MasterCard rewards or Amex reports be on a blockchain and considered a stable coin, right? Unfortunately, yeah. those things inflate worse than U.S. inflation, but, you know, yeah, yes, absolutely. Why wouldn't they? It's just a better accounting standard and medium of exchange, right? It's much easier to move. Um so yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Uh, you know, whether it's called stable coins or some other value transfer, um, I think that methodology would will clearly be used in the future, and that's why you're seeing a lot of the biggest brands um, explore the space. Got it. Now, uh, I I, I want to switch gears a little bit, and and we still stay in the the stable world, but let's say everyone's trying to push this uh, permissioned DeFi, right? All these kind of like sandboxed type of DeFi primitives. Do you think there's going to be a dark side DeFi and then reg side DeFi moving forward? And PayPal would kind of have to choose which side of these to support? Or, you know, what What are your thoughts on uh, that kind of dichotomy? I mean, clearly by looking at me, I the chat fight person from the start, but like, I don't really understand 
the permission DeFi from like an institutional, like a Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan doing the permission DeFi. Because the, the difference is, is they trust each other. So I don't really know why they would need to, they're fully comfortable trusting each other because they sign ISDAs and MLAs and MRAs and they, they operate in a legal structure where they pretty much know if, you know, in every scenario, who's going to win out and who's going to lose. So, and then they're, they're all globally systemic, important banks. So the global central banks are going to, like, none of them are really going to go down without a backstop. So uh, I, I mean, I think it's really because there's a bunch of like younger people inside of these institutions who want to get in, their firms into DeFi and they're like, let me create this sandbox wrapper so no one goes to jail for this. And I can hopefully teach the older generations that run these banks how to move into the into the crypto world in a safe way. But like, I don't think you're going to get any real innovation out of these, you know, sandboxes. I think it's really a way for them to like educate the more senior people who run those places. Uh, gotcha. So it's a stepping stone into going full DeFi. I see. Yeah, I think it's going more just, just into being more open to crypto because I think the biggest, the biggest unlock for banks, and this is why I don't understand why more CEOs are not focused on this. Like if you're a CEO, your job of a major company, especially the bank is to get the stock price up. Like that's how you get paid. That's where you get paid in. Your job is to get the stock price up. So the advantages of blockchain technology and stable coins to not only move money faster, but settle transactions faster. And what that value is for these people or for these institutions is so massive that it would, could translate into ma multiples in their stock price. And what I mean by that is when you think about a bank, it's the money they make over the capital they use, right? The capital is the denominator. A good portion of their capital is locked up settling a trade. So if me and you do a trade and it settles in a day, both of us have to lock up capital until that trade settles, right? If you can, if you move everything to the blockchain, it settles instantaneously via a stable coin. There's a tremendous amount of capital that can locked up. Like we're a small shop. I don't have an analyst that can run that, but I know from my experience working at banks of the what we used to do around quarter ends and important periods of reporting, we would stop trading for days around year end because the capital impact of settling a trade was so large, right? If you could wipe out that denominator, the numerator gets bigger and the stock price goes up. So like, I don't understand why someone can't just sit in front of these banks and being like, guys, you do this stock price triples. And you know how hard it is to get a bank stock to triple? And so that's where I, I feel like there's going to be an aha moment for these banks and whether it's through something like project guardian, where like it starts to educate these, mm -hmm. you know, older generation who are the CEOs of these banks. I mean, that's, it's kind of a generational thing, right? Um, that kind of ties back into your question about these sandboxes and, and permission mm -hmm. DeFi. I think it's really a Trojan horse, honestly. Yeah. I would now, agree. Exactly. That, Trojan yeah. horse. Tro Trojan horse was the exact word I was thinking, right? Like I think, I think we'll continue to see some of these kind of red initiatives or attempts, right? People want to have their sandbox and stuff, but the reality is, is it reduces capital efficiency at the end of the day. So like, you know, they start to move that direction. They start to realize, oh, I can actually unlock, you know, this value that's over here if I have this or this value. And so it just pushes them further and further to this kind of permissionless system, right? Like, and I mean, they can still set up boundaries within their permissionless system. So maybe we'll see kind of somewhat of a bridge, you know, you have certain uh, say treasury products that train a trade on chain and you know you have to be KYC to trade the treasury product but then there's a wrapped version of the treasury product and that doesn't have 
those restrictions. So I think like we'll continue to see maybe the attempts of kind of the sandbox there, but we're also going to continue to see people, you know, kind of figuring out how to like blur the lines, right? And as long as there's the DeFi and the dark crypto uh, side of things trying to blur the lines, you know, it's going to keep pushing us towards this more open and permissionless system. Cool. Thank Got you. it. Um, I have a question. We were talking about permission DeFi uh, sandboxes. Something that has had a lot of sandboxes recently are CBDCs. And I want to get into CBDCs a bit because I have my thoughts about CBDCs and I would like to get your thoughts about CBDCs. My personal strong held belief is that the US dollar will not have a CBDC. I do not see America having a CBDC at all in the future. It makes sense for you know smaller economies or you know city states like Hong Kong, Singapore, other countries, they can have a CBDC. But the way I see the dollar system structured, it just doesn't make sense. And if I'm the US government and I see a new black hole to, for a bond buyer and and that's stable coins, I would want to be promoting stable coins. I would want to see stable coins to thrive. And like once I had this realization and unlock, I'm like, do they not see this? Am I am I the one who's crazy or are they crazy? So I just want to get your guys' thoughts on that. Am I crazy or does that sound like a solid argument? So I think your view on the US having a CBDC is 100% right. And if you don't mind, I'll just expand on why I think yeah, it's right. Go ahead. So think about how our banking system and monetary system works. You make a deposit in the bank. The, the, the bank can use that, can, can lend out X percent, uh, X multiples of that. Um, so the, the bank makes this, serves this function of a, as a money multiplier, a, a safe place to deposit your assets and an allocator of capital, right? To make mortgage loans, small business loans, right? If everybody can then have a bank account at the Fed, because once you create a CBDC, then everybody can have a bank account at the Fed. Why would anyone leave their money at a regular bank? Right. And we yeah. saw this during the SVB crisis. We're seeing it now, right? Like if you're just there, you know, you don't benefit from them lending the money out. Right? You do in the in the interest rate, but not really. Like if you if you have a JP Morgan Chase account, you know, you have to fight hard to get more than a couple of basis points, even with treasuries at five percent. So if all the money moves to the, to the central bank, who's going to make loans? The banks don't have any deposits anymore, right? All the deposits went to the Fed. So who's going to make loans? Who's going to extend credit to the economy? Who's going to multiply the dollar through these loans? So to, to that point, Dave, I totally agree. There will not be a CBDC in the context of it, um, of the way that the first version of CBDC is thought of. But I think we will see a CBDC but not in the way people are thinking about it. And I think the Brazilians are the ones who kind of pioneered this. And FedNow is very much the similar, very similar to the way they're thinking about it. So I believe the project in Brazil is called Drex. And what it is, is the central bank, and I'm just very high level, the central bank will allow any private and public entity to issue a stable coin if they meet these certain parameters, right? So. Stores, vendors, banks, all can issue their own stable coins. If they meet the parameters of Drex, all the Drex says is that each stable coin is equivalent to each other, and all of those stable coins move on our backend rails. So everything moves through the central bank, but anybody who hits the, the criteria can issue their own stable coin. 
So you have to keep a certain amount of assets and collateral ratios, everything the same, but everything moves on central bank rails. And that's essentially what FedNow is too. You know, we're gonna, you're gonna wake up and FedNow is probably the worst marketing team ever, but the, capa <laughs> the, the capacity to move money 24 seven is very real and is here. The problem is, so the tech, FedNow allows banks to move 24 seven. The problem is the banks haven't built the technology to connect to the rails. Right, we have 4,900 banks in this country, right? Some of these banks are, you know, smaller, like pre and have probably more, less assets than the McDonald's down the street, right? We have so many banks and their tech stacks just don't connect yet. So, you know, this CBDC, like instantaneous movement, like the benefits of a stable coin um, are going to be here. But I think it's going to like the concept of a CBDC, I think it's just going to kind of fall into the background and you're just going to see the the payment system evolve so much better and usage of tokens is going to be, you know, so there'll be many that fall under that CBDC like umbrella, but I don't think there'll be a singular CBDC to rule them all kind of thing. Um, that, I, I can uh, agree with that point and hop on that point uh, that there'll be, you know, stable coins mm -hmm. that connect to basically the Federal Reserve chain of settlement with FedDAO. Yeah, I mean, listen, and this is why you're seeing all the credit card companies getting in the game, right? Because what is a credit card company? Payments plus lending, and most of them lose money on that. Like, if you're if you're if you're paying twenty six percent interest, the probability of you not eventually paying that off is pretty high, right? So they make the money that three percent or two percent at the transaction level. Well, if everyone's connected into the stablecoin game. And you're on a layer two, you could make payments for two cents. And and, and and I know Dave's in Brazil right now, so I'll go back to Brazil. Brazil's got this yeah. amazing technology called PIX. Have you have you used PIX when you've been down there? Or you, or you I don't know Brazil? Yeah, so you I know Brazilians like, yeah, yeah. bank app. So it's like this QR code based system where anyone can pay anyone on their phone and it and everyone's connected to PIX through their bank account. So and it's free. So you can go to any local vendor or chain and just pay with your picks. So if you actually have the money in the account and you don't need the credit component, it's immediate, instantaneous, and free. And the scary thing is the, the government, it's a government's project, they funded the whole thing. So if you're a FinTech investor in Brazil, you might be a little scared because you're competing against the central bank and they're not charging anything for their products. But um, it, it kind of negates a big use case for the credit card companies and almost all their margin. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, uh, Mason. So, what are your thought, thoughts on my CBDC thesis? I think everything that you guys have said is pretty reasonable. Um, I was pretty amazed. You should take a look at the uh, FedNow website. It's actually probably I think it's like at FedNow.org, and they have this explorer. It's called Explore the City, and they built a little metaverse that you can kind of like quasi move around to uh kind of see how the system works you can also check uh the providers it looks like there's around 200 at this point um i think the point about you know who's going to lend if everybody's on the fed's book very valid uh i also just think that you know and this kind of goes back to the earlier point of you know whether there's going to be thousands of stables or not the reason i think there will be is because it's it's almost like if you look at the corollary to history it's like there's a period of banking called the wildcat banking period, which is essentially uh, one of the first central banks of the U.S. Uh, 
had to encourage or created a system to encourage banks to issue their own fiat currency uh, and use it to buy bonds. So everything we're talking about is like, you know, the Fed needs to figure out how to sell people bonds and like keep selling people bonds, really. I'm not saying they have a problem with it now, necessarily. But, or not the Fed, rather, uh, government, obviously. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on the CBDC thing because, well, yes, I agree that, you know, it reduces lending to have everybody on the one book. Uh, I also just see situations in which, you know, there is desire for more control over money, right? And, you know, a central bank digital currency or one ledger kind of eases the simplicity of that. Um, so I, I'm really back and forth on it. You know, two years ago, I would have thought there would be one by now. Uh, so maybe the best bet for me is to to continue saying, yeah, maybe in the future. But um, I don't think we have the situation that necessitates it yet. I think we have, again, Fed now and we have all these other kind of things that are popping up and providing almost a bridge. And I just also think that the kind of the developments and kind of the crypto market, how this is moving along is also it's kind of back to that sandbox versus, you know, uh, unsandboxed type of thing. It's like as, as we continue to build greater efficiencies, higher capital efficiency, it's like there won't be as much of a reason to build kind of this parallel system uh, that kind of blocks people and is more reductive than inductive. What I will say is that we, I think we need to get this CBDC like blessing like they've done in Brazil because, you know, we're still moving way too many payments through ACH and SWIFT that take days and hours that could be instant. Like what, we have this technology, why are we not using it? Why are we still sending money through banks? Why, like we should be spending the money and effort on tracking the payments so that we know that everything's KYC and AML compliant, but like, why are we still taking two days to send money somewhere? You know, yeah. and I think that's, we need the CBT standard so we can benefit from this technology. It's kind of, it seems like that's kind of a waste that we're not doing that already. Yeah, that's the proper way to word it, the standard. And then everybody can build on top of the standard. Um, I have one last question, and then we're going to raft with our lightning round. Uh, and this is about the Bitcoin ETF. So this will come out on Wednesday in two days. It's likely that it's going to get approved, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on the Bitcoin ETF and its ramifications for Tripso? Uh I mean... I think it's tremendous, and I think it's tremendous for a couple of reasons. Um, I think um, Dan Moore had put out something about a week or so ago where he talked about, he really just explained the friction of like his dad wanting to buy Bitcoin um, and how much easier an ETF will be. And I totally believe it. I mean, you know, my father would like to have an allocation to Bitcoin, but he's not going to get a Coinbase account. And honestly, you know, the, the, the phishing scams around Coinbase, I get text messages now, I get emails and my account's compromised. Like, who needs that? Like, the, 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 who needs that, right? If it could just be, okay, my, he, you know, my dad's going to call up his Morgan Stanley broker and he's like, you know, sell gold and buy me some Bitcoin. You can't do that now, right? And, and you know, IRAs, 401ks, yeah, you can do it, but you got to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. It's not, it's not easy. So I think from the, the generational adoption phase, I think it's good and I think it's underestimated by people in the space because, you know, we're all capable, but it's, our parents are still the ones who have all the money in this country. So, you know, we may think we're smarter than them, but they're still holding the bags. 
The, the other thing is, I think people misunderstand where the biggest amount of demand is going to come from. I don't, there'll be some natural retail adoption like we talked about, but you got to say someone like BlackRock, BlackRock builds ETFs like Lego blocks. So when they, they create all these Lego blocks in the universe, so bond ETFs, gold ETFs, you know, sector ETFs, credit, equities, and there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of money managers around the world who build private portfolios using these ETFs. So now you just added something they can now add to their portfolio allocation. And there's been million, you know, there's been dozens of papers written about how adding even a small amount of Bitcoin to your macro portfolio increases your returns and increases your sharp ratio, all blah, blah, Wall Street index nonsense. But it's, it's mathematically provable. So if you now have this Lego block that all these money managers can use and people start accepting it as a macro asset, you could see a lot of large scale adoption without people even knowing it. And I'll give you an example. I'm old enough to remember when oil got an ETF and, and gold got an ETF. I've never physically bought gold or oil, not out in my trading desk, like it, personally. But I look today in my Morgan Stanley account and I have a some portion sliver of gold ETF. And that's how it'll happen. You'll just find it in your portfolio. You'll find it in macro ETFs. You'll find it in technology forward ETFs. You'll just find it everywhere because now it's accessible. So I think between the older generation, adop easier to adoption, plus the portfolio effect, you know, I'm not going to make a prediction 10 billion, 20, 50 billion. I think it's going to be a lot. Uh, whatever a lot means to you, it's a lot. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's going to be a lot. And how, how does that trickle down to like the, the price chart? Like for every additional marginal dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like how does this come back to pump our bags, <laughs> please? Um, it, there's good, there's benefits and then there's some drawbacks, right? Because the way that the ETFs are being constructed and, and you know, Gensler's kind of last minute, no one kind uh, subscriptions, it, it's just going to mean that it's going to be harder and harder to fill this demand meaning because you have to have physical Bitcoin sitting on exchanges. And if there's not a big lending market, you're going to get gappy price swings. So like on the way up, it's going to be awesome. We're going to jump five grand in a day, kind of like we did today. Right? You're going to see these big gaps up because it looks great if you're holding it. But what's going to end up happening is it's going to feel very unhealthy because it's also going to gap down that way because the market hasn't built the infrastructure for that kind of demand yet because the lending market's closed. And that was a big reason why we built Trident to really, um, I'd love to say I predicted the ETF was gonna be launched a month before we launched our lending platform, but I'll just take credit for that now. But yeah, we obviously have to execute <laughs> at this point, but we there's gonna be a big demand. For those of you who are kind of uh, more trading nerds around this, typically when the market rallies, Bitcoin rallies, but perps rally faster or futures rally faster because there's just a leverage bet on the spot. I think that's going to change in this rally um, because think about it this way. If you're long Bitcoin spot or you're long Bitcoin perps or you're long some calls, the delta, like you're exposed to Bitcoin going up. Like for every dollar Bitcoin goes up, you make this much more money, right? That's delta. That's all well and good up until the ETF starts because the ETF only cares about spot. You can't sell it perps. You can't sell it calls. So they're just going to constantly demand this one thing that's going to be harder and harder to source because the lending markets are seized and because a lot of the Bitcoin is locked up or lost. So 
there's going to be a point where the Bitcoin spot price, I think, will trade higher than the futures and options prices because there's such a demand for that one form of Bitcoin. And it's going to out, depending on how, and it's it, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But typically when we rally, we have what's considered contango, right? So the futures trade higher mm -hmm. than the spot. I think we'll be in a situation where we can see spot trading higher than the futures in a rally. And that's just going to blow up a lot of correlation and models and algorithms. But uh, I don't, you know, it's, it's definitely a big up event for sure. And I think, you know what it is? You get a pop and then you get this grinding up every day when you're like, man, it did all the bad news in the world and, you know, China is shutting down more miners or whatever. And it just <laughs> still grinds higher. Right. And that's what I, I think it's going to be one of those relentless, like, you know, for all the haters, it's going to be one of those death trades where you just lose money every day if you're short it. How Send does it. the lending apply to the uh, ETF? Why? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not following that connection there. So because they have to buy specific tokens, right? If there's no lending market, people need to physically have bought Bitcoin so it could sit on the exchange or sit there for the OTC trade, right? As opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to borrow a bunch of Bitcoin. If I get lifted, I sell it. Great. If not, I just have it on my balance sheet, right? Now, every, they're going to have to have, as this thing buys more and more, they're going to have to have more and more Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And if you can't lend it, you got to buy it. So it's going to be a lot riskier for them to hold big and big, big balances of Bitcoin because now they own it. When you borrow, you don't care if it goes up or down because BlackRock's going to buy 50 units of Bitcoin every day. You're just trying to make a spread on the bid offer. But now that you buy it and it goes down 10 points and you're still only making 0.5, it becomes more risky for you to fill their orders. So what do you do? You charge more. The bid offer spread gets wider, right? Because you have to pay for the risk that you could lose money from when you buy it to when you sell it to BlackRock. Right, as the MM, uh, as the market maker, yeah. kind of having to, to make these markets. I see, yeah. okay. So I think I think it's I, it's probably a little bit technical what I mentioned, like inside markets, and we've seen it happen in a lot of different markets. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in 2020 in April, oil futures went negative. So literally yes, if you could I take delivery that. of oil contract, like barrels, they'll pay you money. So I'm, I, it's, it's something like we've seen this phenomenon before where people only care about the derivative and not the spot. This is the opposite. People care about the spot and not the derivative in this world I predict. But who knows? And Mason, your thoughts on the Bitcoin ETF? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a massive new on-ramp. Anybody that's saying that it's already priced in just doesn't understand the market dynamics. And then about the uh, kind of ease of access, you know, I mean, my dad has been dollar cost averaging ETH and BTC for four or five years now. And, you know, once a year, at least I have to help him get back into his Coinbase account, all this stuff, which, you know, I actually kind of avoid doing just because I'm like trying to get him, you know, just hold it, just leave it there. Don't touch it. Just let it happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, just like Anthony said, I think a lot of people are just going to wake up and Bitcoin's going to be in their portfolio and like... You know, it becomes a little bit more of a, you know, it's just a part of a position rather than it's like kind of a core thesis, right? So we're opening it into this market of just like people that are looking to have their portfolio and have it managed by someone, whatever, doesn't, they don't really care if it's Bitcoin or whatever, you know, like if Doge had the market adoption, right? And Doge had the same beta, you know, correlations, like same risk profile, like wouldn't really matter you know people would just they'd have it in their portfolio and it would be there i'm not not here to 
sell Doge or anything. I don't hold any, but I think, yeah, uh, people are massively under uh, underestimating, I think, the value of just ease of access. Uh, I mean, that's what we're going to see. Guys, understood. We're, we're all super bullish on the ETF uh, here at Flywheel. And I remember when I first really got into crypto in 2017, when the Winklevoss twins applied for their ETF and it didn't go through and the whole market, it tanked to like under $2,000. And it was like, this is the end of the world. So this feels really full circle here. And, you know, really crypto step onto the main stage and being accepted by traditional institutions. And we're going to see how it all plays out in the months to come. Uh, but guys, thank you. Yep. I gotta just make uh, one last comment. I, my, my, yeah, first year in, my first year into crypto was Bitcoin Miami in 2021. Oh, I was there. And, oh. Right. And so, so as Coinbase, you know, Michael Saylor was obviously a large client uh, and we got to meet with Michael before he went on stage with Max Kaiser. Remember that event where he's wearing the black suit and guys wearing the white suit and all the shit that came out of their mouths? Mm-hmm. I think fuck Elon came out of there. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so to, so Bitcoin Miami this year, when we upgrade from, you know, Michael Saylor to Larry Fink is pretty cool. Like that's a massive upgrade, right? Just, 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 you know, no disrespect to Michael. He got us, you know, he, he carried a lot of people along the way, but going from micro strategies yeah. to black rocks, uh, you know, micro strategies. Good time yeah. It's, it's the ETF for the ETF. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, but yeah, guys, thanks so much for coming on uh, to wrap up the show. We like to do a lightning round. Uh, where we get to know our guests a little bit more. I'm only going to ask two questions to both of you guys. Uh, so here I go. Um, what would be some advice to your younger self? And Anthony, you can go first. Uh, eat less and buy more Bitcoin. It can't be buy Bitcoin, but eat less. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe shave once different. in a while. Yeah. Trade less. Trade less. That is fantastic yeah. advice. Trade less. Eat less, trade less. This is um, the minimal, <laughs> minimalist answers right here. Uh, and my final, final question, uh, Mason, who would you like to see as the next guest on Flywheel? Who would you recommend to come on the show? Uh, I think Nur Hardy would be a very interesting person for you guys to talk to. As the inverse finance guy? It um, is, yeah. yeah. He's got a couple cool yeah. primitives. He's just a smart guy. So I think you guys would enjoy mm-hmm. talking to him. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, I like that answer. Uh, Anthony, your turn. Oh, that's a... Um, I actually think getting someone from PayPal on the on the phone, I mean, on the uh, podcast would be really interesting. Really yeah, hear it I'd out of the, the horse's mouth. You know, I know it's a it's a big corporation and there's comms and things like that, but um, I don't yeah, know. I think it would be pretty interesting, pretty interesting to hear from one of the, the, the people who are allowed to speak and who, uh, you know, who can really articulate the vision of what we just guessing at. Yeah, we, yeah, we would love that. Um, but love both your answers. Loved you, having you both on the pod, uh, getting all your perspectives about stable coins, the market structure, the ETF. I'm coming out of this super bullish show. Anthony, Mason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where could people find you? Um, on uh, Telegram, t- I'm uh, uh, ADM212 and at trydig.io. Nice. Mason? Some Mason on Twitter. That's S-U-M-M-M-A-S-O-N. Uh, but yeah, Tridig.io <laughs> is a really great way to 
to get in contact with us and to learn more about what we're doing. So, awesome. Super Thanks, cool. guys, and hope to see you again soon. Perfect. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Post Game Show. I'm your host, Defi Dave, here, as always, with Capital K and Sam Cola. This time around, we had on the fellas at Trident Digital who are bridging the gap between DeFi and TradFi. And I really like their insights. I really like Anthony a lot. I like how he, his life, it's funny, you would think when you get older, you would want to get less on the risk curve. You're trying to get risk off the risk curve, but he's just is looking for like the most risk on fields and assets. It's like, oh, you know, self-prime merge. It's like, oh, uh, emerging markets, like, oh, stable points. And so it's just one of those people that just you know, thrives in volatility. Uh, and he really is perfect for crypto. And, you know, it's cool to see someone like that you know, get deep into the trenches and build like a cool, innovative product. And it's people like him that really can help make those bridges to TradFi, but also knowing the crypto ethos and like staying true to like, okay, like the blockchain world, like we have to be permissionless. We have to be composable. We have to have, you know, the proper money. Like those, you said, you know, fuck, fuck permission, DeFi, all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, Mason had a lot of ingrained insights too. You can tell he's like the DeFi native. So, uh, Kit, what are your thoughts on this one? Oh man, I I really really like these interviews with like super deep TradFi people because they give us insights into like the machination of how it really works. Like I I didn't really understand the the lending component of like an ETF bit, but now I, I kind of see that oh that's that's kind of how it works. And then how he said the ETF is like a Lego block. Now it's just. Now this is a positive. How we have primitives in 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 uh, DeFi, they have ETF Lego blocks in TradFi to use and plug into places, and you just never know what token wrapper or in this case what ETF wrapper you're going to end up where. I thought that was really cool. interesting too. Yes, Sam, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, I thought the interesting thing was just the international focus that they're coming in with, right? You know, we talked about Brazil and Argentina and all the capital controls and stuff and just about how they believe they can make an impact going into these markets. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really get into RWAs a lot, but, um, you know, it sounds like, what do you guys think of as uh, what they're trying to do with trying uh, digital? I think it's interesting. Like the prime brokerage, right? Where you have better understanding of who your counterparty is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a big gap. Uh, Kit, go ahead. I wish we got more into the mechanics of the product because I've only you know heard it from another podcast that I listened to while doing research for this one. But I really wish we got to dive into like how it really works because it, yeah, I, I wish we had the time. And to. We, we, yeah, we can have them on again. Um, what is a part of the interview that sticks out for both of you guys? I like his stories. I wish we could have talked to him more about his like his career stories. Yeah, me too. Like his trenches. war stories. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just I, I think they're both pretty positive about it. It's nice to see that we have uh, TradFi people entering the space and feel so positive about what they can build and about how they can you know, grow the stablecoin landscape into a trillion dollar business. Kit, what about you? Um, I just like how they both think that the permission DeFi is just a Trojan horse to really get them to be fully red pilled. You know, yeah. so it's, it's like crushing up the red <laughs> pill into baby it's, food and like feeding it. Yeah. 
You know, it's just like baby steps. You know, it, you can't go all full permissionless all at once. You got to feed them, go like permission DeFi and all this stuff. Uh, I think I really, I really like what Anthony added on to the CBDCs uh, in my argument and calling it a standard instead of like an, another chain. Because he, I had like one thing I believed in for a long time and I mentioned on it in past interviews. And he was like, yes. And I also add to that. Uh, it made me understand Fed now a bit more. Uh, it's interesting to see what's going on here in Brazil. I know they've always been ahead of the curve in Brazil when it comes to payments and stable coins, but to hear from him and his perspective adds another dimension to that. And it actually just makes me quite bullish, you know, Brazil uh, embracing this future because, you know, the ones who embrace it quickest, uh, they have easier settlement, better, faster settlement, which makes markets more capital efficient. And, you know, those gains might not happen overnight, but, you know, over time, you know, capital flows where it's most efficient. And so where there's the least resistance. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this after the, the show with him, just that like you have JP and Goldman and all these other banks building their own systems, but really adoption comes with people actually like using, using it. Right. And just because they build it doesn't mean that any other bank wants to implement it. It, it kind of has to be a, uh, like, uh, intranational, intra like institution uh, system that everybody can be onboarded to, and that's that's hard, right? And that that takes people like Anthony and, and Mason to go out and build it and really like politic hard to get people yeah, to come and, and join. Yeah, yeah. Agree, agree. And then you know, let's let's also talk about the PayPal bit, right? Because that was kind of like a big oh, part yeah. of the episode. And for me, I I found it was quite interesting when he described it as like the layer two of money. And he meant it in like both the technical sense that PayPal would ha- would perhaps maybe he can't speak for PayPal obviously would have like a layer two, but also what it almost symbolically represents when we think of money, how like uh, PayPal's ecosystem is going to be the layer two, and the settlement layer is going to be the actual bank itself, and finding ways to abstract it as far as possible and keep people within the PayPal ecosystem for as long as possible before ever, ever touching the banking layer, which I thought was quite interesting way of see, of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any so more final? Yeah, go ahead, Sam. Well, let's talk about Frax where like, and fitting in and all this, like let's get some yeah. uh, unqualified opinions, conspiracies. I don't know. The DeFi stable point of settlement. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to see the PYUSD Frax implementation. Uh, I yeah. think I think the, the the team's got some stuff cooking, and uh, you know we've already seen some deployments on Curve, but this Trident uh, Trident's growth really could bring you know billions of dollars more into Frax, which is what we want to see. Yeah, for sure. It's you know actors like Trident that can help really help bring stablecoins to the next levels until you know seeing trillions of dollars of stable coins in circulation. Who knows how much frax in circulation one day. I'll let the imagination go there. Yeah, somebody was posting yeah. about the the, P, the PYUSD swap fees like inside of PayPal, and they're like percent and a half, right? But if you're doing it on chain through like Curve on an L2, it might just be a couple of cents. And so I think that's where the real opportunity wow. is. It's I like realize that. are using these things, you know, <laughs> Oh, if you're just in the app, right? You're almost be egregious fees, right? that they're charging one and a yeah. half percent for a stable swap. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I think it's oh, other yeah, currency. Yeah. I think it's the non-US currencies, though. 
I think. Oh, that makes sense. If yeah. it's like, a, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That, that, that's, but still, it's still like, ridden the, with fees. Yeah, I mean, the idea with the idea with Curve though is, is that it becomes this place where you have like international currency settlement at some point, or even the crypto space in general, right? And if that's the case, where we see like a euro or like you know, I don't even know, like a, a Argentinian peso or Brazilian uh, real, like the Curve space would be it for it to trade and PYUSD would be that like liquidity hub and Frax would be there as well too. Yeah. Yeah. And then any more final thoughts on this pod guys, anything else that stuck out to you guys? It's, it's time to be a bull guys. Just yeah. It's time to be a bull. Only. Time, it's been, it's, it's been time to be a bull since crypto investor came on. That was <laughs> the turning point. Yeah. Hey, and hey, hey, what, what happens if we it, don't get an, a, a BTC ETF? Up only stuff doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, like we should just cut out that clip of like on ETF day of just crypto yeah. and you're not bullish enough, guys. You're not bullish enough. Um, but if you want to see that clip, you want to see all our episodes and alpha and updates here at Flywheel. Make sure you go ahead and hit that bell button right now. Go ahead and subscribe to Flywheel Deepai. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Give us a like. Make sure you follow us on our socials at Flywheel. Flywheel DeFi on Twitter, TikTok, and Telegram. Make sure you go ahead to our website, flywheeldefi.com. Go ahead, subscribe. You won't regret it. In fact, you'll thank yourself later. And make sure you follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. Follow me, 0x capital underscore K. And I'm at traders underscore insight. And we'll see you next week. Everything said in this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.